grown-up men materialize and perpetuate collective age-old stories produced by human brain malfunction. <laughs> Surprisingly, I'm gonna say, welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Karri. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I, I don't know, it's a question to myself also. Yeah. Who am I? What's my name? I don't know. Tommy? Vaina? Uh, <laughs> Henrik. Yeah, this is the kind of film podcast where uh, I guess a priest becomes a film podcaster, becomes a music video editor, right? <laughs> Perhaps becomes becomes priest someday once more. Full circle. We yep. are from we're from Finland and uh, yeah 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 we have we've studied a bit of media whatever it might amount to you decide what do we do here you decide. Yeah. <laughs> and yes we have a beautiful accent because we are not Native Native Americans, no, wait, no, Americans. And the podcast structure here goes more or less in the way that it's been going, that we pick a few movies and try to find some kind of a tying logic around all of those movies. Oh, well, I guess that covers it. Shall we get to it? Yeah, by all means, why not? Yes. Yeah. Well, why the hell are we watching this film, Henrik? Well... Uh... I, I could ask you the exact same question, Ooh. except I, I, I guess you are going to defend yourself by stating that this is my pick. Uh, this is your pick. Yeah, this is my pick. Yeah. yeah. Please explain. I'm, I'm to blame for, for today. And m- my answer is, well, why on earth we wouldn't be discussing about this film? I mean, this is this is an international film podcast, and here I am providing the content. And just look at what content it is. We have today's movie is an anthology movie. Eight different segments from eight different directors from all over the world. I know that. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I provided like whole smorgasbord of internationality to today's episode. That you might have done, but you still haven't really explained it. Or is this kind of a new metal song where the, the r- r- lyrics go more like, why should I explain myself to you? <laughs> no, to be honest, I I chose th- today's movie simply because, because. It, it has a it has a running theme, which is folklore. And, well, it's, it's eight different directors from eight different countries. You can't actually get, like, more international episode on this podcast. That that's true, and yeah, the, are... the same same was true for the for the Finnish penis monster. <laughs> well, we are even more international today. The, the infamous Christmas episode was only only three nations. Today is eight, and we are actually visiting some nations that we haven't yet been visiting movie wise. That is true. And on, on top of that, on top of that, we are also finally making return back to Poland, yeah. which is a country where you used to live for a fair number of years, which makes you a perfect, like, a professional critic of, of Poland and Polish folklore, which 
by all means must mean that when it comes to the Polish segment of today's movie, you can tell all of us what it was all about. Yeah, it was it was all about why Henrik should not be a priest. <laughs> But <laughs> the, the dude, dude in question was not a priest. He was just a gourmet cook. <laughs> <clears throat> But whoa, I'm kind of thinking this is some kind of a stab on me again, because we're talking about myths, lore and folk tales, especially those subjects that I really don't excel on and I'm not a big fan of. But I will try to give you my views tonight too. Uh, to, to, be, uh, like, to be honest, that was not my intention. <laughs> I, I didn't... I didn't knowingly start to play you on thin ice today. I merely was focusing on the fact that, well, it's a, it's an anthology movie from from you know different parts of the world, so we easily cover the the international part of our podcast. And the fact that, well, all of these segments are at least supposed to have a unifying theme, which is folklore. Yeah, the movie kind of does the whole tying up the themes for us tonight. Eric, where to start? You want to go just one by one, or? Yeah, I guess today's case it's it's perhaps the most the, the easiest going and most productive to, to just go these through one by one. Because as it turns out, as a as a combination, today's movie, the field guide to evil. That the whole folklore aspect kind of doesn't completely hold together throughout the movie. Right, well, let's get into that. Our first victim is from Austria, Monster Stories from Austria, which is not about Joseph Fritzl. (laughs) 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 Sorry to everyone, everyone in Austria, banned yet again from one country. But Except not sorry at all. <laughs> well, Joseph Fritzl, it sounds like a serial brand anyway. So. <laughs> oh, the director duo here is um, now known for Goodnight Mommy, which I believe we both have seen. Yeah, some time ago. I can't say I remember like that deeply the movie anymore. Yeah. It was, but it, it, it made, made of fuss when it came out. It was for a short amount of time goodbye good night mommy was was all over the place mm. and i i've seen it just once mm. and i just kind of didn't get into it mm, yeah yeah maybe maybe it didn't completely satisfy with the end resolution but it was uh, kind of a fun ride nonetheless to see and uh since then they've directed another horror film called lodge which i haven't seen any experience with that one I'm I, I'm aware of the movie. I do know what is the end plot twist because I I managed to go into some. It was I I was reading some analysis about you know modern day horror movies which spoiled the the end twist for me. Hmm. And like based on what I've understood about the movie, I also haven't like go out gone out of my way to actually see it. Okay, well <clears throat> let's. Try jump right right into their segment so the whole plot twist or the or the plot kind of a summarization pre 
text to this whole thing is Once upon a time in Austria, when life and love were still a sin, myths tell about monsters brought to human bedsides at night time. Monsters born from guilt and fear, sent to deprive us of our lives. Breath. Yeah. It kind of makes sense in, in the case of, of the first segment, the sinful woman of Holfall. Yeah, so what I essentially get from this, there's uh, someone who becomes consumed by evil, which lesbian sex obviously is. Not my conclusion, but Naturally. yeah, it's the film's conclusion. I don't think they're trying to be making any kind of a statement about that it would be evil. It's just that their film is saying that in the context of those times and all that. So... Well, Hall of All touches upon. I, I do think that it's, it's a pretty good opener oh, yeah. for this anthology. Not because it's it's like that scary as a as a short uh, as a short. Um, all, all of these segments are supposed to be short horror films, so obviously that the scare factor comes into play. When talking about these shorts, and in my opinion, Hallfall isn't isn't that scary as a short film, but it works as a good opener because it touches upon one a crucial element when we are talking about the the old folklore, uh, perhaps also when talk, talk about the the modern day folklores, but especially you know your your olden times folklore. Your classical fairy tales and folk tales, your your old brothers Grimm mm. type of stuff, and the problem with with a lot of that material is is the fact that since those stories they stemmed from uh, the the sociocultural sphere of those times and those close tightly knit communes, which often in in Western territories were extremely a Christian, surprise, surprise, oftentimes that the folk tales themselves were not looking that kindly into, well, th- things that are were not traditional uh, Christian conservatism. Like, for example, in, in Hall Falls case, uh, the possibility of, of, you know, gay relationship. Ships, or the, the whole idea of uh, sexually active women. Both which are things that have been shamed in in the past folk tales and and fairy tales etc etc. So in in that sense, I I do think that Hallfall makes well not any any kind of a groundbreaking observation when it comes to folk tales and folklore in general, but make makes an still like like as an as an opener piece an important observation and. And a tiny, tiny condemnation of the more problematic elements of folklore. You said that it's not scary, but I agree with you that it's a great opener when it comes to not scary or scary. To be honest, with uh, the scare factor of horror movies, I've kind of given up on that a long time ago. I, I don't think... Well, there are still some individual frames, shots that kind of give you the creeps like maybe in this one i really enjoyed one of the one of the shots where 
what looks like a female entity or the monster uh, that is in the cabin uh, behind the bed. That was that was nice, nice, nice work indeed. But yeah, it's a, I think it's a pretty solid storytelling, and um, that's kind of what I was looking for here when I jumped into it. The film is also marketed, at least on IMDb, as something of a telling of the tales of the basis of the genre of horror as we know it today. My knowledge doesn't really go far, far enough that I could say about that. I can tell that there's like folk tales, tales and uh, old stories, and yeah, they all share those kind of elements that you see in many horror films today and horror stories, so... But I don't know if these particular stories are so woven to the universe of horror. Anyway, I think this could be seen as a kind of a revenge of the family members, the way that these kind of stories were built up on those days. You know, lesbian sex was forbidden, so therefore there could be some nasty person from your community who would organize some kind of a creep factor or some scare for you so you will not do that again so these silly stories so to speak kind of carry on uh but simple story and quite enjoyed it yeah it's um simple is is actually quite good adjective to, to describe whole of all it is it is pretty enjoyable short I, I agree with that. There, there was I blown away by it. No, no, no. And no. I do, I do think that, and this is going to be a running problem with the field guide to evil itself, which is the fact that I do think that at the end of a the day there are too many short films in in this anthology, which means that they don't have enough time to actually go anywhere. Properly, and Hallfall, in my opinion, also kind of suffers from this. Like it, it touches upon the the whole idea, or or it raises the raises the point that in in folk tales, for example, lesbian sex can be see is easily villainized and and condemned, but it it kind of doesn't go anywhere from like like that that observation it uh, also it it has its own story which is to, to say it kindly extremely extremely simple there is the the open-ended ending of the film which just kind of is is dropped on you and the possible ramifications of of, of that ending or what why it uh, what it in, in, insinuates is is never really opened up or, and talked about. Like there is a possibility with, with the ending, there is a possibility that there may be an incestual sexual abuse angle. Oh into, really? Into this story, yeah. I'm pretty much basing basing this reading onto the fact that when we finally see the the demon uh, during the final night. And our main girl take, takes the knife to de- defend herself. The, the final form that the demon takes, and it's really quickly when, when this is shown, but it's the it's the girl's mom. And the next morning, the mom is is covered in in small surface level cuts, and and the knife the, the, that the girl was was holding the previous night in order to defend herself from the demon is now covered in blood. 
So I kind of took it, especially because the the sexual angle every so often go beneath the undercurrent of the folk tales. I took it that that it hints towards the possibility that the mom could have been sexually abusing her daughter. And the the whole, oh my god, there, there's a sneaky nighttime demon attacking me thing could be just, you know, the, the troubled psyche of the daughter kind of finally coming to terms with what her mom is doing to her and just kind of like like her sub- subconscious trying to paint the, the situation into something else than what it is. She believes that she's targeted by, in this case, Alp, a Germanic elf, and in, in reality, she's just been attacked by her mom. So you're saying that this is, after all, about Joseph Fritzl? Yep. <laughs> or that that I, I'm saying that that's one possible reading of the situation. It would also kind of fit into the overall theme of the short, which is the the sexual awakening of our main character, and also, well, if if not lesbianism, just you know, a curious sideline travelings into girl on girl intercourse. Mm. Like it's it's not not stated that. The characters in the in the film are lesbians. They may just be, mm. you know, sexually active, curious women, and it, it might be that that the, the, there is no Joseph Fritzl angle with with the mom, but yeah. that it it would kind of work. I I see that it it could fit into the themes of the short. Could be, but what I definitely see is that there's kind of forcing forceful passion between the, these two young ladies for whatever reason. They are very drawn to each, each other and they do what they do and the, the consequences are murky. And it seems that Kathy, the main girl of the film, is then consumed by evil after doing these acts and then at the end of the film, spoilers as we always do, her partner then smiles at her from the window. So what I see is that they are both kind of consumed by something that they shouldn't be consumed by uh, inter- interesting ending for a story, but if you want to take it from the folklore and angle, fair enough. Yeah, uh, it's it's not super tied into any any folk tale as far as I'm. I yeah. was a- able to track it that the folklore angle here is is the creature, all mm. the, the Germanic elf entity, which o- often is is being depicted as. Well, as a mess, in in fact. Because when it comes to Germanic elves, they're kind of all over the, the place. It's, it's Or at least, you know, with, with my layman's understanding of, of Germanic folklore, or Alps, they are really easy to... Or it's really hard to tell what is an Alp and what is, for example, Drude. And that becomes a question later on, you know, in another segment. Of, of today's episode. So, because of this, it's it's hard to actually say what exactly is the creature that is stalk, stalking the, the main character and what are supposed to be the attributes that go with that creature. But, quite many of the Germanic elf folk do have this, this incubus type, type of nature, 
some of them are like downright or some some of the folk tales have elf characters that are downright rapists so the the sexual angle does does fit that the folklore take here and o- overall like the the depiction of how the entity in in this seg- segment works it it kind of, it fits pretty nicely into the germanic elven creature of folk mythology yeah. there are once again the creature only appears or directly attacks at night time which is to and there there is the, the sleep paralysis angle with, with the attacks which ties into with, with the famous nightmare painting by, by Henry Fussell in in which you know the, the original title nightmare stemming from from German Nachtmar which Roughly translated would mean elf dream. So, kind of like even though it's it's not like a folk tale being depicted here, that the folklore angle works pretty well in this instance through the character or through the entity that the film uses. Yeah, overall, I'll summarize it so that the film doesn't blow me away either it doesn't really have to do that but quite enjoyed it and was surprised positively by the overall of this film this collection of eight films and it has a relatively low score on many sites surprisingly but it's a pretty worthwhile trip anyway by the way there's something about the goats in these stories, often, that goats are related to something evil, or in here we have the, we have the sucking of the, of, the, of the breasts of that animal, or if it's not goat, then it's some similar animal, because there's like 10 similar animals, but let's say it's a goat. Yeah, goats are, goats are together... Uh, well, they're actually showing up surprisingly a lot in in mythology, in, in folk tales, also in religion, or at least some modern interpretations of of religions. Like uh, back in the the olden Greeks, I do remember that goats were well, like Greeks considered goats sacred animals, since the animals were sacred to the Greek goddess Artemis who was the goddess of, of Hunt. And uh, from there you have like like repeated folk, folk tales which, which do have goats. And in, eventually you kind of reach today, today's Christianity where the opposing side of, of Christendom, Satanism uses goats, like uh, go, goats, uses goats constantly in in their imagery, yeah. Uh, also, also, you know, in, in Finnish language, at least we often tie goat with Satan, like word-wise, vanhapukki. And Austria is seems to be a very good location for the build-up of this kind of legends or stories. Seems that it has a lot to do with the landscapes as well. I I'm getting that feeling, like. There are a lot of mountains in Austria, and these are good material for folklores. There's caves and cavern systems. There is elements behaving in unusual ways. The howling of the wind in certain parts of the mountains, how it howls, it might be under your, your feet. 
just making that kind of a very specific noise at night when it's pitch black and your imagination runs wild. Yeah, it's a it's a good place if nothing else as a as a backdrop for your like historical Christian conservatism movie. Well, shall we travel to Turkey? Well, better not. I've I've heard Turkey is a weird place. I also heard that Turkey creates pretty weird modern horror. Yeah, well, here is haunted by Al Karizi, the childbird of Jin, uh, directed by Can. Evrenol, or however you would like to pronounce that. So, yeah, let's throw the baby out with the well water. <laughs> well, Turkey is not perhaps that well known as a as a film country when it comes to it. Uh, they they've had had a, a film industry. Certainly, they've made noticeably good movies, but usually when, when we, people tend to, to, to think about like, film countries outside of Hollywood. You get your usual suspects, you get your get your French, you get your, especially the new babe, you, you get your Germany, you get Italy, usually Tur- Turkey is not on, on that list. Yeah. But recently Turkey has been trying to, to break through and Trying to like like open and and broaden broaden its its take on the global cinematic market. It has been preaching into into horror and and fantasy territories, like precisely like Evernall's previous film Baskin, which was yeah a Turkish horror fantasy movie that got surprisingly a lot of press outside of Turkey also. Yeah, this this director seems to be a guy who's into much of the rare and bizarre corners of world cinema and had quite a lot of local influence from fellow directors and uh, workers in the field. He has also helmed a Netflix original TV series in his home country called The Protector. Haven't checked that out, but he left that after first season due to creative differences. Certainly seems to be a guy to look into and maybe a Turkish cinema should be something that we should look into and I realize that I'm I guess I'm now de facto talking about the animal Turkey all the time because it's not Turkey anymore Henrik it's Turkey <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how well, to feel I'm, about I'm, that I'm, 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 I'm willing to ditch Turkey once Turkey itself ditches Erdogan <laughs> so you know that the offer is on the table it's up to you guys. Oh god, I can't access any country anymore. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, um having previously checked out Baskin, uh I'm I'm starting to pick up with with Evernall that he is a director who is very interested in in the visual style mm. of his movies. He's also interested in in going into well, I can't say perhaps new extremes, but perhaps new Turk- Turkish extremes when it comes to uh, to he, the, the visuals of of his movies. Like ba- Baskin, for example, very much like well his segment here. It was not a film focused so much on the plot, much like in. In in the ha- haunted by Alcarisi, that the plot is what was co- quite thin. 
at times it was also told in a way where you weren't exactly certain what what was going on plot wise and the focus well like the most of, of the chips seemed to be in the visual style and the visual storytelling also the aspect that i do feel is the strongest here in Alcarisi. you think this is the strongest of the bunch I do think that if nothing else, it, it's not the strongest of the punch necessary, and it's not strongest of the punch visually, but I would say this is the most frightful of these stories. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is the most frightening, and I would say also very strong on the whole cinematography side of things, on the visual side of things, like you said. So this is related to the creature known as Al, let's say, uh, in many languages. It's similar to that Al uh, in in Turkey and nearby countries. In Armenia, there is this Al's who steal the lung, liver, and heart, and it's kind of the same story in many of these countries near near Turkey. And they can steal babies and cause miscarriage. There are slight variations to this, but uh, in most of the countries, it stays relatively the same. And you can ward off this creature with uh, charms, iron objects, onions, garlic, typical. Yeah, and with that in mind, it's surprising exactly, it's surprising how far removed from that all the films all actually is, because the creature here in this segment, it's it's nothing like any kind of organ you know, nighttime organ stealer who attacks sleeping women. All of that is directly out of the window. This is more some type of a open trickster trapper kind of demon. Well, the Turkish variation is a little bit different, I guess, to the some of the other variations. This is Al, as in Al-Karisi, and... Uh, there's very hard to, it seems to be very hard to find information on this, but there was one website that was quoting an Encyclopedia of Spirits, The Ultimate Guide to the Magic Fairies, Genies, Demons, Ghosts and Gods and Goddesses by Judica Illes, where it's described as a creature that is deadly and vampiric spirit who craves the inner organs of horses and humans. And then it goes on into a long explanation, but basically babies are on the table as well. Yeah, and in in this segment's creatures case, craving for inner organs of of women and babies means that you get stuck on well on a well. Uh, well, I guess the organs was optional. <laughs> I I like I'm I'm guessing the well is is meant to be the Alcaris's lair. There there are bones no. to be shown, which I take are are hinting in the fact that. It's a, it's a place where uh, she stashes her victims and then eats them later on. Well, something like that. What it looks like is that she, the mother, is now consumed by the evil as she's sown by the, by the well and seems to be going to throw in the baby into the well. Something, something. And there seems to be a connection between the what I will again call goat and uh, actually the goat is that one of those manifestations of that spirit, at least in one of these countries. <laughs> and uh, and the go- goat seems to be kind of tied with the old woman who seems to be paralyzed or 
whatever is going on with the health condition of hers. And there's the these pictures of sharing the eyes of goat. So yeah, goat seems to be the one to kill, but apparently the goat has already transferred his spirit into this old woman. Okay, you you try this one. I took it more in the way like something to note with with all uh, spirits. I don't know about all crazy, but every other all spirit is the fact that they usually are depicted to be double gangers or shapeshifters. Mm. So I took it that the goat itself is here is nothing more than a red herring. The the old lady has been the the demon perhaps from you know ever since the segment start starts. It's just like it, it has been using its shapeshifting ability to masquerade itself as the as the old granny yeah but overall visually i got almost like some kind of a sam raimi vibe did you feel anything like that um towards towards the end yeah yeah there there is some of that well can't say body horror but and and not really gruesome but like there are body movements especially for example, in in the scene where where the the girl is is feeding the old lady, there, there's some type of a milky substance, and she's feeding it with with a spoon. And it's not a direct like it's it's not a actual close up on the old lady's mouth, but the mouth and the mouth's movements are really like like they they are the centerpiece of the image in in that scene. And while it's not gruesome. There is a certain level of of uncomfortability that that comes off from the way how she moves her lips, moves her lower jaw, and yeah, there there's a certain amount of that quirkiness, that kind of um, a special humor that Sam Raimi spices on his movies that I find yeah this. yeah yeah. There there is some some of that like. Take a look at this and feel uncomfortable. There's also yeah. some of the more inventive camera angles towards the end, like when the mayhem really starts. Like for example, when when the the girl is locked in the bathroom, mm. and through the bathroom door glass, she sees the the yeah. entity taking her child. Loved it. She's the sad shadow. There's the close-up of the blood, and later on, when she's on the well, there is like the the shot upwards from the bottom of the well, looking at the old lady as she closes the lid. All of that, I I did feel like, or I I did get some Sam Raimi vibes from those. Yeah, or maybe what we are looking for is there's certain cartoony element about it for me, anyways. I don't like. I'm. I'm not saying it's not there. Where cartoon is perhaps not what I ex- per- personally, I personally experienced. But th- this is once again this is tying with with I. I guess me me seeing Baskin before before seeing the field cut to evil because I ba- Baskin kind of does this exact same thing and ba- Baskin does the uh, uses the visual language of the film to. Kind of go into the Hellraiser-esque body horror surrealism territory. Mm. And I, I kind of saw saw Haunted by Alcarisi as a, as a certain type of, of a visual continuation 
from the the directions that Baskin took. Not going more extreme. In fact, it's more subtle and more like like hold back here. Mm. Baskin try, uh, a, aims to go all the way to, to, towards the end, and haunted by Alcaraz's stays very grounded, even even in, in in its ending. But I kind of saw a communication when it came to the visual, the visuality of the movie. I kind of see a, a saw a discourse between you know. Alcarisi and Baskin. Okay, well, good advertisement. I have to check out Baskin at some point. It's okay. I'm not. I I don't think it's the the you know unsung masterpiece that it at time was marketed out to be. The the story is, in my opinion, pretty thin. Also, kind are really hard to follow. And it's overall to me, Baskin felt like a movie that emphasized more of its visuals than the actual story and storytelling. All right, is it time for some Polska? Well, by all means, tell us what was what Kindler and the Virgin was all about. Well, obviously, Kindler. Is the lady and the virgin is the is the priest. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Agnieszka Smoczynska. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this might be like the most Polish looking priest ever on screen. Ever, ever. Anyways, uh, the story summarization is quote an allegory of magic and the desire to gain complete wisdom, but a mind that knows all can be a very dangerous thing, end quote. Said in modern day Poland. <laughs> well, we can see the Polish court of arms there, but I have no idea what it, what this is based on. I guess that's modern day Poland then. <laughs> <laughs> I I tried to look this this one up and no. I couldn't find anything. And my un, like my take is that this is not actually based on any folk tale, right. and not not in. Folklore, either especially. It's, uh, I took it that it's more like uh, the core here. In, instead of folklore, the core is about you know just the universal question of like it, it, it's it's a more universal, more common story of a beware the forbidden knowledge. Like like the the main question here is is that how willing or what price would you be willing to pay for the ultimate knowledge? In that sense, it's it's kind of the same question that also the French film Martyrs asked. How far would you go in order to, to achieve absolute knowledge? And I kind of... Like, the feeling I have is that it's it's like a modern-day tale, it's, it's a modern-day story that simply uses... Uses the old time setup. Uh, this is being set up to something. I, I don't know exactly what time period. Perhaps so extremely late eighteen hundreds. Well, early. it's 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 a Polish film, so obviously it's based on Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, could be. During the Second World War, and it, it just kind of uses that as a as a visual dressing. In order to, to have this story be fitted into, you know, this anthology, uh, folk story 
folktale anthology. But yeah, what what we have is um, some kind of flotation device powered proud young gothic lady in her morning dress telling secrets of men who will win all wars once you consume three hearts of the freshly deceased. Yeah, I've always been waiting for that mor- moment when I the moment when I get such wisdom from freshly deceased people. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> Well, it's it's not completely far fetched, or or you know you know the actual act is yes, but the logic that this story kind of plays with is not like there. There there is something to the cultural cannibalism that exists in some tribes, and usually the idea behind the act has been twofold. Obviously, yeah, the food is scarce, so it's kind of like the, the, the deceased giving the one final thing to its community and making sure that the community itself survives, eat my flesh. But the second aspect that at least occasionally goes here is the the idea that you somehow get so some of the attributes of the person you eat. You gain his strength or or something alike. And basically this is going on with the same tangent here. The thing just is that, you know, instead of bodily strength, instead of health, what you are gaining is, is wisdom. But but the act is more or less still the same. You consume human flesh in order to, to gain something. Well, looks like the guy has already become a novelist in his cell. So I guess he gained a whole bunch of wisdom. What it actually looks like is that what he's doing there, he's writing the story of the war because he's grinning. So that's what it looks like to me. I I took it on the other hand, I took it that he's he's conducting his next like masterstroke idea. That the whole whole thing here the story the Kindler and the Virgin is that like you stated the, the weird levitating demon lady promises the dude that if you eat the, the, the three hearts, you get all of the knowledge. You become all of wise. She is weird. And, 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 and the dude does exactly that. And if, if the weird lady is true to her word, that would mean that, you know, the dude just gained all the knowledge. Which he then uses in order to, well, bargain himself into a better societal situation, because my reading wa- was about the end that he on purpose gets caught for the crimes so that he would be tried, uh, and he does this simply for the for the sake that during his tri- trial he can finally say to those who are in power, "Hey, I ha- I have this magical trinket that will li- help our king to to win all wars." And when he's in prison, I you you hear start to hear the drumming uh, drum sound. Somebody somebody is drumming in in the battlefield. Mm. So I took it that at the end of the day, the king actually like he he gets imprisoned now, but the king is kind of making an agreement. I'm actually gonna try the drum thing. Let's see if it helps me win the war. And if the dude is correct, well, in that case, you know. He is now in prime position to sell the king the, the next trinket. Give me five orphans, and I promise to you that from the from the 
uh, pulled out teeth, I, I make you a toothbrush, which cures impotism or something like that. But, but a- anyways, he, he's in prime place, he's safe, he has pen and paper, he can start to, to devise the next trinket, which after now that the king finally wins the war and comes back to him, holy shit, my dude, the, the, the whole tram thing actually works. Well, then he can say, like, I, I actually have here the next trinket already planned out. If you just give me freedom and perhaps 5,000 gold, I can help you, you know, get the next thing. Yeah, or he's just writing a love letter to the weird lady, the corpse. Who knows? Uh, who knows? Who knows? But I, I saw that this as as a type of a critique of, of the whole notion of, of rulers in the past and in present, being consulted by sorcerers and seers. Like we, we have, when it comes to, to rulers, when it comes to monarchs, when it comes to presidents, we have a long tradition that there's a, some type of a seer-like figure. Mm. Sometimes it's, it's a da- damn wizard, like Rasputin. Sometimes the, the seer is completely mythical, like, like Merlin, Master King Arthur. And uh, these days, it's it's not not longer. We are not dealing with wizards, but we are dealing with highly intellectual consults. Like, for example, Bannon was to Trump. But basically, the, the framework is different. It's no longer magical. Now it's some type of a. I have the the meme understanding of ne- of the internet, but the but the function is still the same. You have a ruler who puts his faith in some type of a chosen consultant or a seer. And I, I took that this is like a critique of that behavior. The tendency that rulers have to to handpick a chosen individual who has like this, this backdoor access to them, because they are supposed to provide the secret knowledge how you lead well. There's also some kind of rites and rituals he slashes his wrists and seems to eat mucus as a preparation, something that the weird lady seems to have left on his arm when he levitates away, whatever that might have been, but I will just say it's her mucus. Something communicates to me this is a very, very Polish film. Can't try to put my finger on why, but might be the priest. Might be just the priest. Might also be using apparently extremely old building as as your backdrop. Oh, that building! I wanted to say something about that. Can somebody tell me what that building is? And if it's in Poland, tell me where <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> <coughs> I'm I'm already treading for the le- for the nearest cemetery of the, that, that building. <laughs> well, would it be USA, USA, USA? Oh God! So apparently, a yank found a video camera. Yes, and he filmed melon heads in. Du- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some. Let's look at some A-level parenting from America. The, well, this. Well, well that's the. Parenting is is not that bad in, uh, in melonheads. It's uh, well, it, uh, it leads into melonheadedness. 
But okay, let's get into that. Anyway, it's directed by American horror film and short film director, writer, actor Calvin Reeder. You might know him from VHS as Gary. And uh, yeah, he has directed some short films that have been doing pretty good in the short film cir- uh, circles. But yeah, go ahead. So, uh, I, I guess we can just get this one out right away. I think that Beware the Melon Heads is hands down the worst segment of the anthology. Ooh. It fails pretty much on every single level. And oh. I can't understand what the fuck it's doing here. <laughs> yeah, the story goes the whole summarization so that, quote, there are humanoid children found in northern woodlands of the United States. They are said to possess an abnormally large cranium and are known to be aggressive, violent, and possibly cannibalistic, end quote. On what point here, Henrik, did the film fail? I think it crosses all the marks on that description. <laughs> but, yeah. It's... Uh, we, are, we are talking about anthology films. Or anthology... Film anthology here. Which means that, you know, okay, of course the movies are going gonna come all over the place. We are going to have directors with varying degrees of talent and varying degrees of budget. But somehow they, they, the USA managed to be the one that absolutely looks the cheapest. Every other film, like if nothing else, it it feels well, like a like a like like a like a short film segment that you could put in in an anthology film and feel proud of it. Except beware the melon heads, which is like like absolute B grade. Starting filmmakers trying to fu- to earn their their first mark in in filmmaking. Yeah, that's why when it comes to to visuals, when it comes to the the cinematography, when it comes to the acting, everything reeks like that. This is mm. the most run of the vi- mill experience that you have in this anthology. Yeah, well. Yeah, I understand where that could be coming from. This uh, whole film is produced by, at least mainly produced by Legion M production company. And this is a company that uh, says that it's the world's first fan-owned entertainment company. Meaning that it allows fans to invest in, uh, in the movies that they are producing or the TV shows, whatever they are doing. So kind of giving them an integral hand in the whole process and the directors seem to be in these productions kind of something on the fan level starting their career here etc so it gives voice to different doers yeah it does but every other director here manages to hide the fact <laughs> and so, some some of these directors by god are actually that they have less short films under their belt than you know yeah. What our man Colin Reed here has, he's well, actually he's he's one of the more experienced directors. Yeah. In, in the in in this anthology, so the especially contrasted against that, you know, the kind of the lack of quality here is somewhat astounding. Mm, it seems a little hurried, a little rushed. I mean, it, even starting from the effects and the acting. Yup. 
And when, when it comes to the story, it, it seems that it wasn't being, it wasn't thought out that not much thought was put, thought was put into it. And once again, it's a surprising complaint to be made because this collection does have stories like goddamn God Hall has uh, when you look at look at the story like like plot beat wise or plot element wise Hallfall has less plot elements than Melonheads that there's more things going on in Melonheads but Melonheads still feels like the film or, or or the segment where less thought about for the plot was given than in in Hallfall um this could be a little hard to explain, but I feel that it could be very cultural also. Not just the director, but the culture in which they they make films. Perhaps in America there is often this kind of mindset that yeah, let's let's do it quick. There's a certain uh, go ahead faster than maybe some other directors. Maybe some industry pressure pressure, I don't know. Or you get used to the way of making films that there is a uh, maybe it's a low budget and you just have to go through the segments of making of the film as fast as possible and then the quality might suffer but then that might be kind of um, a certain quality or, or style of that country if that makes any sense it it kind of yeah I can understand uh, the argument but I'm still not letting the film off the hook simply because of that yeah this was a disappointing experience in, in all merits. And that also includes the the film's main, well, threat, bad guys, the titular Melonheads, which, which is also a decision that I can't understand. Like, seriously, why the fuck Melonheads? Why did you choose Melonheads? Did you find anything about the Melonheads? The Melonheads are not that widely known urban myth. It's kind of a mixture of, or it's it's kind of a spin, in my opinion. And you know, listeners can correct me in, in the comment section afterwards, but I took it as a spin of the Jersey Devil uh, uh, urban myth. You you wow. basically <laughs> you ba- basically have have this the same goddamn blueprint here. You have feral kids. At times attacks, you know, unsuspecting civilians who just happen to go through their turf or walk anywhere near their turf. You also have, well, not directly stated, but, you know, you you have the hints of, of inbreeding in in some versions of the Melonhead myth. You know, inbreeding actually is, is downright being brought up. It kind of, it's not... Be, that typical aspect of the Jersey Devil myth, but you know, the feral feral family, you know, they, they ain't really going to find mates outside of the goddamn the most obvious gene pool. Hmm. And you you also both share the, the whole cannibalism angle. Well, in a way, Melonheads is an interesting choice for sure. If you think about the the folk tales or stories from the United States, there's a lot of material to pick up from. I would firstly go probably to Sasquatch, do something about Sasquatch or or, or the Bigfoot. Yeah. 
Yeah, or you know, just use a use a creepy scarecrow. Right. You have an abundance of those. Right. Like like melon heads as a concept itself, and as as this this segment shows, it's not actually scary when you, when you actually see them. It's 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 somewhat hilarious. Unfortunately, yeah, it's also you you can say, and this is something that of course plays a lot into you know urban legends folklore in general but like like so many other tales melonhead story also perhaps somewhat insulting because you obviously see what where, where the whole melonhead aspect stems from it's ba- basically you know the fear of bodily malfo- malformation the bulbous mm. heads that we have here most likely is just based on the victimization of those suffering from hydrocephalus, uh, mm. which is a, a, a medical condition, the swelling of the of the head. So you know, nice fucking job once again, right? Picking big, big, your bad guy. The myth it itself, in fact, and taking note that, like we saw often with urban legends, you have. Different variations. You you have like state-based variations. Ohio has a different, a bit different spin on the melonhead myth, like than for example Connecticut. In my opinion, the melonheads here in this segment they are they seem to be based strongest in the Ohio and the Connecticut variants of the legend. From Ohio variant you have a creepy ass doctor, and from Connecticut you get the location. But o- overall, it's it's kind of a smashed potatoes situation here. And like like I said, like I said, there, there are variations depending on what area we are talking about. But some some of the stories with with the melon heads is that they were supposed to be they they were children. Locked in in mental asylum, they they escape one one night and take on to the the nearest woods where they go feral. In in some tellings of the story, the the mental asylum staff abuses them mentally, phys- uh, physically, I most likely also sexually in in some retelling of the story. So you have have that aspect. In in some cases, it's. Uh, it's like it's like the the insanitarium, like prison insanitarium, mm. and they, the 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 melon heads are are inmates there, and they are being and human tests are being run run on them by mentally deranged doctor. Is it Doctor Crow who usually gets to be the bad guy in in this version? Eventually, the the melon heads who now have been disfigured by Crow's experiments. They they finally attack back. They they riot. They slaughter the the sanitarium staff, and then they run to the woods where they now you know get into the inbreeding and the feral stuff. Right. So you you also like like not just you know the the demonization of the victims of of uh, hydrocephalus. You also have like the demonization of of you know mental health patients and well. The psychiatric practice, or at, through through the the dastardly Doctor Crow, 
You also have, well, depending on the story, the prison inmate population, once again, extremely violent and prone to cannibalism the, the moment you turn your back on them. It's, it's, there, there's a lot like, who gets the blame when it comes to the melon head myth? Uh, which is also one reason, like, and and of course, well, as mentioned already, and why, like we already kind of talked about quickly in in when we discussed about the whole fall. This is something that happens in in urban legends. This is something that happens in folklore. Yes, I'm I'm not like saying that Melonheads does anything especially increases here, but once again, I word out the question. Why did you choose Melonheads? Why didn't you take another urban myth? I guess that's a big problem, kind of like you hint in in uh, folk tales in general that they are truth-based on some level, and especially if there's something like that you mentioned behind possible Melonheads myth, then uh, yeah, you're dealing with real-life roots which is communicating to you that perhaps this is the filmmaker's lack of research, which might backfire on them, which might have already backfired. So we come into these very sensitive topics. But what I guess is our both, both of our problem with the film, rather the film's problem, is that in contrast to the other films, it's not artistic. It's not artistic enough. No. Yeah. The appearance of the film is uh, kind of run-of-the-mill U.S. Uh, how to say? It's like a cheap American TV movie. Right, right. One of those that get gets made like five thousand a year. Right. And they are just pushed on streaming and and pushed on TV channels, and you never actually watch any of them. It's just <clears> like like content that is just being created in in the sake of making content because somebody gets a funding if you make a film so now we've made a film but speaking of artistic and uh, firing the cameraman we have something from greece yeah which comes from the the the, the crisis input whatever uh, whatever happened to banagas the pagan directed by yanis veslemes and uh, the, the the answer to the title's question is no. Nothing happened. Well, but, he goes into, I guess, hell at the end. <laughs> and just yeah. decides to stay there. Why not? You know, the lodgings are cheap. Mm, the the preface is, quote, Kallikansaras are the lowliest of the devil's children. They, they brood underground all year until Christmas Day when they visit empty houses and play tricks on people. In parts of Greece where pagan customs are still alive, the Kalikansaros dare to mingle among the drunk, beast-like humans. Mm, who is the beast of the film? Uh, yeah, extremely... Like, like we, are, we are kind of once again dealing with, with the, the, the trope storytelling aspect of, of filmmaking. Yeah. Today we are la- landing on the humans are the true monsters. Hmm... And, you may um, never have actually heard this this revolutionary take in anywhere. Yeah, there's something about the, how the camera carries itself from shot to shot about this that is this makes it the film kind of very hard to follow in the sense where we are and where we yeah the kind of um, 
think the storytelling aspect of the camera is such shit here. I, on the other hand, I actually quite like I I do under like agree that the storytelling aspect of the camera work perhaps leaves something to desire. But I did enjoy greatly on on the visual side of the camera work. I I liked the the energy and I liked the sometimes even nauseating way how the camera operated. How how it went into extremely close, extremely dirty close-ups. I can see what they could be doing there. It's just I see that it's a problem of variation and problem of of having perhaps the right angles to film from to to know where everything is for at least i got this nauseating feeling from just that yeah uh then again i kind of believe that the film is doing this on on purpose because altogether it's a film or it's a it's a segment that does not want to let you know when it actually is happening there are a lot of things that kind of makes it hard to say when when does these events happen? You you have the pagan, uh, pagans who are dressing in fur and, and horns, but they also have a ghetto plaster. They, they have cars, but they are old cars. So, uh. is, it, is it 2000s? Is it 90s? Is it the 80s? When exactly is this happening? And like there, there there's a lot of elements... They very much like the characters that the people in this film are like from somewhere from, well, bloody 1800s, if not even the Viking times. Mm. But then they have a ghetto plaster, and then they have a car, mm. and and then there they have. Uh, I couldn't exactly pinpoint from what period the military uniform is that we see once in the film. That could have perhaps given given us a time frame. What period the the film is uh, the, the segment is supposed to take place? But I couldn't exactly pinpoint it. But but you have like modern esque military attire. So yeah, it's, it's like it, the, the the time period here it can pretty much be anything. And even mm. even like what that the film opens, it it closes with with the segments. Like it's that the story is told in, in in the way that someone is is reminiscing is is remembering what happened once. Well, we we start in in like quote unquote present, and the story goes back in time into time time period X, and we don't even know what the present is because the the, the present actually looks surprisingly much a lot like present like the opening moment of the film could even be like like Greece in in 2018 yeah yeah and seems that um, this is these are kind of create creatures that crawl up from the underground world during Christmas or during 12 days of Christmas from 25th of December to 6th, 6th of January the winter solstice period for fortnight period and then during this time they are supposed to have other tasks than to be bothering humans but then they're supposed to do that but actually it's the humans that are bothering them yeah it, it kind of uh, depends on i 
Yes, the once again the version of the legend. Because Kalikan Charas as a as an entity is pretty much supposed to cause headache for the the humans on on the surface level. The the idea mm. kinda is that for the twelve days they, they cause havoc, they are mischievous, they, they cause harm and then after that 12, 12 days they, they have to return back to underground back to hell and once they are there they actually see notice that that humans are on, on on the surface are once again able to fix the havoc that they have caused they the, the humans they, they repair what is broken and like they they, they just fix the situation and Kalin Kacharos Looking at it, come into the realization that god darn, we didn't like cause permanent damage this time. Let's start to try again next year, and then it's a it's a cycle that repeats yeah. every year for twelve year, days. They try, they never succeed, so they are like, yeah, back to that drawing board. Yeah, Kalikan Saros. I don't know where this is coming from, but it seems that. It seems like an almost like a sick orgy first, but it seems that the humans are drinking wine from Kalikansaros's veins. Kind of a biblical elements thrown into weird places. Oh uh, yeah, well the 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 segment brings up the the whole priest character. So I I guess the um, I I also didn't find a direct mentioning of Kalikansaros blood drinking rituals. Or or the blood having any kind of a like in here it's hinted that it has some type of a psychological or some type of a drunkness effect. They quickly comment that the drinking of the blood is supposed to to lead into some type of a temporal insanity, and I didn't find like a direct mention of that actually belonging into the myth. So. It might be that that aspect here is brought up because they bring the the Christ, the, the priest who comes to to see the the now trapped Kalikancharos. So it, I I took it that that's a just you know a jab at Christianity and it's it's point uh, it's pointing it's poking the 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 whole holy communion re- right. In, in Christian worship, and that's why we have it. Well, interesting elements, but it seemed like a bit of a mess to, to follow it. But I, I think it's on the lower end of the spectrum here. Uh, I, on the other hand, I actually put it on the, the higher end of the spectrum. And I would say that the, the, when it comes to the filming style, or when, when it comes to the not not visual, like cinematography, but when it comes to the way how the film is constructed, kind of like energy wipe or wipe wise, I would say that, that there's a heavy, heavy paying tribute to the Soviet era filmmaking. This felt very much like like Soviet film. No. Like if if someone would have said that here here's a Soviet made horror film, a short film. And they would, it would have had like like a Russian dubbing. I would have actually <laughs> we been tempted to actually actually believe the argument. So I can kind of, I I would perhaps suspect that perhaps some of the the 
the feeling that it's it's nauseating that it somehow that the feel uh, short itself kind of puts you off it may actually be like that soviet era style filmmaking that we have here yeah it's just somehow the overall it feels kind of uh very very mixed and chaotic maybe that's what it wants to do even even the whole pacing yeah I, I would say that the pacing is extremely slow, perhaps even boring. Mm. Especially if you come unprepared. And, and the fact that, you know, we have an American short preceding this one makes, yep. makes no favors here because Christ, Americans, American was really in the, in the hurry. So it's it's like you you go eight miles per hour and all of a sudden you hit all the brakes when once the grease segment starts. That's but cool. I, I I would say that this was from from the segments of this anthology. I would say this is perhaps the most meanest and the most nihilistic of, of the shorts. Yeah, it doesn't do any favors for for the films perhaps because. Yeah, like you said, that there's a lot of them. I don't, however, have a particular problem with the length of them. Maybe there's just a lot of starts and stops and starts and stops, which is always a problem in these kind of uh, productions. But uh, maybe it could have worked better if I would have just watched each film very separately. On some parts I did. Sometimes I took a break, like, okay, I need to gather my thoughts for a moment and continue. I, I feel that the stories could have actually... They, they could have been stronger. Right. They could have said more if they would have had more running time than what they ended up with. And I actually thought that you were trolling me when you said the, like a, that you would want to do this film. No. I was, I was just looking at the ranking, at the reviews, <laughs> and what is this so random? But yeah, actually, and- yeah. I'm happy that we're looking at it. Yeah, and I like like talking about the fact that I do think that the stories could have been been longer. I I think that also you know what whatever happened to Panagasta Bacon is is a case example of this because it does touch upon interesting themes. There is the Baconism versus modernity or new Baconism versus old traditions angle that this film has. Mm. From all all of these segments, this is the one that actually does still have its pagan roots. So I that that could have been an interesting direction to see exactly how far this can go in the, go in its like like mind games about paganism in in modern day or or the communal extremism that m- ends up happening here when the when the pagans they form kind of a sub commune. That holds the the calling Gonzaros as a prisoner and abuse him, and it it starts to 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 at the end it's it starts to kind of a spread. First, it's just the small group of pagans. All of a sudden, you have the priest, you have the the military guy there. So the whole community starts to get into abusing the Kalikancharos, and the abuse itself also starts to become more and more extreme. It starts with shouting at his face, and it ends up with literal blood drinking. So perhaps also like, like that, how, how in such of a short time, in 12 days, a community can 
get so extreme and the how the abuse can get so out of hand. That also could have been like a theme that would have been like interesting to see more of, but then the short runs out of its running time and it's just like next story. Uh yeah. Well, I guess it's how how you look at it and maybe many 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 of these films seem like they are just ending into a brick wall, but not necessarily. It's a kind of the thing with the short films. There's a lot packed into it. If you lose some of it on the way, then there's no ending for you. And some shorts really suffer from from people who <laughs> um, who are not able to digest enough of it to to kind. Of, I guess in a lack of a better saying to get it. I'm not saying it's the case for you now or for me now, but in general. And talking about, you know, your narrative ending, uh, stopping at the brick wall, then the next segment. Oh, yeah. Let's... This one stemming from India, the palace, uh, palace of Horrors. Yeah, Ashim Ahluwalia is responsible for this. So let's find out what all can go wrong on this uh, guided tour to Indian jungles while... There's your colleague who secretly wishes for you to die. And we get a happy ending, actually, Henrik. It's a full circle. Well, we kind of get partly and partly not. It's, it, it's kind of how you approach it. Well, it's a happy ending for the colleague, uh, insofar as he's still happy that the colleague seems to be quite... Well, uh, if not dead, then uh, very much injured. This is a very, very interesting mixed mash where we're talking about Henry Gentry who was the owner co-founder of Gentry Brothers Circus as far as I could delve into the guy well hasn't gone into magical palace in in the Indian forests or Indian jungles and experienced his eyes being pulled off as far as I know he very much kept his vision and and died in the 1940. So this seems to be some kind of weird urban legend, <laughs> even though, though there's nothing. If there were anything related to those eyeballs, then I think safe to say eyeballs were fine. I actually, actually to, to touch upon that subject matter, I don't, I, I'm not certain and I'm somewhat suspicious that this actually is not based on any urban legend or any folk tale. I'm sure that it's based on some belief, but I'm pretty sure that this <laughs> didn't happen, but maybe some variation of it that he, yeah, makes sense. He might have traveled, I don't know why he would personally travel, but maybe he would travel to India to find t- tigers or some wild animals, try to pay a good price for them, and then because of his, uh, I don't know, narcissism, he tries to override all kinds of um, good manners in that loca- location and challenge the local quote-unquote gods. Go on the go on to some place where he shouldn't, and maybe he experienced something that he shouldn't. Okay, because I, I on the other hand, I actually tried to to look up the the origins tale of of. The Palace of Horrors mm. couldn't find find chills, so 
I started to get the feeling that this is very much a story that has just been invented for, you know, this anthology. Could be, or could very well be. Like, this this is, it, it's not actually based, it wouldn't be based on anything. It, it wouldn't be any take on anything ex- already existing material. It would just, you know, be the, the director, you know, doodling something on, on a sketchbook. And then, you know, forming that into a script. Well, what it could easily be is that it is some kind of a Benjali folk legend that we just are unable to find. But instead of having the original characters, they just put Henry Gentry out of nowhere into it for reason X. Because the description of the film is based on Bengali folk legend over the summer of 1919, deep within the Asian Sunderband jungles, and veiled from out the outside world lies a crumbling palace, home to strange rites and barely human curiosities. Barely human curiosities collected by a deranged king. Yeah, that that's that's what the the opening text does this, does say. But I'm kinda suspecting bullshit here. Yeah. Like, by, by all means, all means, our listeners can can freely prove me wrong, wrong, and if I am, please do. I would actually lo- love to hear what tale this is based op- upon. But but even even the fact that the filmmakers themselves refuse to actually give you any hints about what tale this is. Like Kaligan Charles and every other, other tale, they, they name the thing they are basing the t- their tale on. This is that myth. This is the melon heads. This is Kaliganzaros. And here it's just, you know, open-ended. Old tale from 1990. And nothing else. And when you're marketing this film as something that is... That, that this is this kind of a root story of horror tales. Or, or the horror genre. If that is the case, then what is the story that we've never heard about? And if that is the case, why do you make this based on Bengali folk legend? Why not just tell the legend in the best way that you could tell it? I mean, in the as as sourced way as you could tell it. Whereas now we have this this this. There's a couple of stories that are kind of sucking in that they are not able to tell exactly what they're based on. And it it does become somewhat of a problem in in an anthology like this, like with, with an anthology that outright like markets itself as something that is now based on on you know folk tale. It, it's kind of like if you would make a make a anthology based on fairy tales, and you would have your your typical fa- fairy tales. You would have your Snow Whites and your Cinderellas. But then you would also have a couple of segments where that are not actually based on any fairy tale. It's just some some shit that the the director of this the, of the the segment in question just came up. Yeah, yeah, where this starts to sound like marketing nonsense, like creating the intrigue by which you write. Oh, oh, origin stories, the horror genre. Of course, I'm gonna check it out. Uh, but yeah. As far as we know, Henry Gentry was the owner and co-founder of Gentry Brothers Circus and remained in the business and sold his business and 
and created another business suffered during the Great Depression, which the business did not survive in. Nothing particularly dirty that I could find on him, except that he is a guy who owns an animal wrangling company. Yeah, and then again, when it comes to, to Henry Gentry, I'm not exactly certain that the real target here is is even Henry Gentry. It's uh, this gets kind of complicated because I'm not in, entirely certain what India is actually trying to do here. But to take take the 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 long longer road here, Rudyard Kipling, dude who also wrote Jungle Book, which most likely you have heard of. Mm. Uh, at times he he also wrote like like horror stories and I do remember one horror story from him it was Mark of the Beast which is quite quick quite simple simple quick tale based on if I remember correctly precisely in India the whole however the the whole idea there is that you have a rowdy but cultivated westerner who is hanging out uh, hanging around with with his two friends. And after a drunkenly insulting Indian religions, he's attacked by a faceless leper. And the, the leper nuzzles his chest. The westerners from this, he receives the titular mark of the beast and starts to slowly tra- starts to transform into human jackal um, something. Showcases all, all the, like the, the traditional transformation horror story symptoms starts to all of a sudden eat blood, blood raw meat, etc., etc., etc. And this goes on up until the end when his also cultivated friends manage to finally aid our our poor poor target to get rid of the cur- to have the curse lifted, and then all is well. The, the cultivated westerner here later on remembers nothing about the whole weird human ch- jackal curse thing. And basically ev- everything en- ends up fine. And that story itself is somewhat of an example of, a, of, of the, the demonizing oriental exorcism that was being used as a shorthand for alien and terrifying that the whole kind of angle that Kipling is was playing in his short story was about about the notion of those heathen lands that the heathen place of of India where you have the lepers roaming the streets and they are carrying all these weird curses which are a threat to to the civilized western colonialist folk mm-hmm. and Looking at the Palace of Horrors, which now is a, a horror short coming from India, the country that Kipling himself once victimized, I actually felt a hell of a lot. Like, I, I got strong Mark of the Beast vibes here. Not just because the, 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 the story itself has a lot of beats from, you know, the adventure stories of that era. You, you have small number of Westerners, here it's two, you, you have the whole nighttime at camp thi- thing going on, you have the mystical beasts of India, in here they are in the king's, king's castle basement thingy. And I, I like watching the Palace of Horrors 
The one story that I really strongly started to think about was Kipling's Mark of the Beast. Uh, this could also be something a little bit more simple in the way that it mixes the whole gentry with this, let's say, fictional storyline. This could very much be something that the director Ashlim Alwalia is known for, the unconventional films that mix and blur together documentary and fiction. Uh, perhaps like in his film Daddy from 2017, which I, which I haven't seen, which is about, uh, about gangster-turned-politician Arun Gauli, but it seems to incorporate some fictional elements into it. So in, in, in that sense, this could be like a fiction-meets-non-fiction story. It could, of course, be that. But I'm kind of still curious about what exactly is the end goal of, of the filmmakers here. Like, why tell this type of story? Why, why make a story from which at least my own personal first impulse was to start to think about, you know, Kipling's short story, which itself is not really that good mm. PR for India. Well, why, was... why does Indian film rely so heavily on on the theme or, or or the feeling of those stories? I was not entirely certain is if if this is some type of a attempt to turn the past demonification of India now into strength by partly doing the exact same thing. Like if this is supposed to be some type of power play. Well, speaking of PR and India. Well, this is, at least uh, it's based on, story-wise, to the, to the Sundarbans. And in Sundarbans in India, there's this Sundarbans National Park, for example, which is a heavy traffic tourist destination. So it could be something like that. Hey, hello, I'm marketing my own country, and hopefully somebody will like me very much, and I will get follow-up jobs. For, maybe. Maybe it could be... <laughs> I don't know how positive this subject matter is regarding Sundarban, but maybe. Well, uh, at least the depiction of, of India here in, in the Palace of Horrors, it, yeah. it's not saying nothing too nice. Well, once again, India is the, is the mystical, exotic location where you can get the weird monsters into your monster collection. It's it's the half-magical kingdom where you kind of have to be like like wary of what you are doing and where you are going because you know who knows maybe maybe the bloody lepers are once again wandering around you know just outside the palace it's as if the tourists wouldn't be already worried enough about the bengali tigers and trying to survive in that uh, nature reserve by itself but then you have to worry about creatures that suck your eyeballs out yeah and it's kind of like India, why are you doing this? Like, didn't the, the Western colonialists already... Weren't they dickish <laughs> enough? Like, do, do, do you now feel that you also like, like have, to, have to follow... The, the, these days, a rather problematic example left by, you know, Kipling and, and the, the co... Well, hell, maybe it's an anti-PR campaign. It's like... Please don't come here anymore. <laughs> or, or, or perhaps it's a, it's a Western PR campaign. 
because like like I said, like I said, I couldn't actually find the the actual folk tale that this could be based upon. But what I did actually find pretty easily simply by watching the film were, were like 15 notes towards H.P. Lovecraft of all the goddamn things to a point where in the, in the collection of freaks, the king here also has collected some type of a Cthulhu-esque tentacle face monster thing into his basement. This was actually more more than Indian folk tale. This felt like an H.P. Lovecraft tale. Well, is there anything that H.P. Lovecraft hasn't written about? Well, well, at least anything positive about the <laughs> the people in India and in Russia. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we are at least partly grasping at straws at this point. So I, I actually well, like find well, honestly, I find the uh, find it somewhat interesting. Like why this? And I I do kind of find it, it does lead into. Rather, like, well, in my opinion, nice philosophical question when it comes to the folk tales, which is that, well, folk tales, the, the whole world consists of two two separate fir- words, folk and like tale, or folk and lore, and well, these days now, now in at the internet time when we have Slenderman and we have creepy pastas and those those are being regarded as internet folklore. The actual question to, to draw from here would be that, like, the works of H.P. Lovecraft, or not the works, but the mythos that he created, the Cthulhu mythos, can it actually someday turn into a modern-day, wo- like, folklore? Because what these days, the, the mythos itself, or, or Cthulhu, it's so widely known that even the people who never had, had read Lovecraft necessarily haven't even heard the name Lovecraft, have still heard the name Cthulhu. So the mythos and and the name Cthulhu, it's, it has grown larger than, than the name of the author. And while, yes, oh, of course, of course, the stories written by Lovecraft will always belong to Lovecraft. They will never be folklore. I, at least I believe they won't be. But I, I am kind of wondering if the mythos itself, like if, if the, the, the vision that you have about, when I say Cthulhu, you have a vision of tentacle thing. I have a vision of unpronounceable word. <laughs> well, which is also like, like, God, God damn, <laughs> <laughs> But. I'm I'm kind of like can actually the mythos itself outside of Lovecraft can it turn into a modern day day folklore or is it already now? Well, unfortunately, we might need to pr- press on to the next one, kind of like the film, we're pressed on time, but Germany. Yeah, Germany. Uh, uh. Uh-uh. Nocturne. They, they made a sh- oh. short film for, for this collection. Yes. <laughs> what was it? The Nocturnal Whispers, Whispers or what? A, a Nocturnal Breath, directed by Katrin Geppe. So let's find out how bad things get if you don't shoot your zombie sister before you want to make love to her. 
<laughs> Excuse me, what? So the summarization of the film says that <laughs> a druid is a Bavarian malevolent spirit that leaves the body of the possessed to haunt and spread disease. The person lies there lifeless until until the spirit returns. And if if the druid is killed, the person remains dead. So when it comes to incestual sex with with your sister, the the prime opening time slot would be after the druid has left, but but before it returns. Because uh, your sister is technically dead, so most likely don't remember anything that happened. Yeah, so... I, I, I just cracked it for you, Germany. That's how you do it. There you go. Well, yeah, we have something that first looks like a love story. Like, yeah, like a nice boy from the neighborhood is just being a little pervert and then gets into thrown into a nice relationship with a nice little lady. But no, there are brother and sister. And, <laughs> and in the forefront, we have this, let's say, an evil mouse that is the druid uh, that keeps the sister still alive. <laughs> yeah, so so when when we we started this episode bit with Fritzel jokes, we were we were kind <laughs> of forced to do that by the Germans. Yeah, the, the, we have a lot of incest around these films, but well, that that's the good old folk tale. <laughs> well, at at least one, once again, like like with, with India, I wasn't exactly certain what is the folk tale that he are trying to use here. Well, with, with this one, it's it's clear. It's it's true. They they give it to you out like, like straight out the gate, and that is a real folklore entity. When yeah. I mentioned in in Hallfall that when it comes to Germanic elves, it gets quite quite tricky to actually differentiate them from each other. Well, you know, I I promise that we have to once again return to that point because. Bloody hell! If it's not hard, if it's hard to actually differentiate between Alp and a Druid, oh. well, folk- folklore-wise, they are supposed to be two different entities. Aren't they the same? But then again, when, when you start to look at the the stories, not this story here, because here the Druid is some type of a weird diseased rat thing that lives in, inside of a dead sister, but ba- basically. The, the typical depictions of Druid, they are ex- surprisingly close to the depictions of Alp, to a point where they get mixed very easily, and it's kind of like, where does Alp end and the Druid begin? Okay, I thought that it's basically the same creature, Elf Alp, just one creature having many names all over the times. You and... would! Yeah. You would! And it's extremely natural misconception to make, Simply because they are so goddamn similar. Which kind of perhaps helps to explain exactly what the truth here is. Nothing like its folklore counterpart. Where it is a mischievous Elvis thing. And in here it's a weird plague rat. Right. Well, it's an adaptation. <laughs> it, it's an adaptation. Here it's, here it's in the form of a rat and it takes over the whole family house. Let's assume that the mother and father have already died due to this disease. We have only the incest brother and some animals left. Animals which um, affectionately have been given names. But they all die and um, 
now in the end uh, the brother try, still tries to keep the sister alive by by taking the the, the rat to him by a kind of incest kiss uh, but then it ends up that it just seems that the sister is still infected by this viral disease and shoots the brother I, I took it that the sister just like, like has the boss to, to do the right thing here Oh, and, okay. and shoot the pro- brother and in, in doing so also kill the druid because there really is no like the, the truth is the problem plaguing the, the household of, of, of the brother and sister. But and as long as the truth is, is around, everything will absolutely go to shit. As it is so shown with the, with the dying farm animals. So naturally, that the only correct course here to take would be to kill the truth. But judging from the eyes of the sister, it seems that... There is more to it than she's not crying. She's just seems to be very content that this is happening the way it's happening with the shotgun and all. Um, it seems as if she's still possessed or she's now free of the possession and uh, she can finally determine that the brother is a pile of shit and better to get rid of him anyway. I, I, I kind of am. Um thinking that uh, or reading the situation like that it, it's the way how the sister like like two things is is achieved here the first of all of course the truth dies good riddance but also the sister kind of now is free to leave the house that they have been inhibiting and go into well wherever she would like to go yeah, it's due to kind of the incompetence of the brother to to finally shoot his sister that the whole place is getting infected. Mm-hmm. Which, which of course, it's, it, it's a natural conundrum. Can you really kill the sister you love? Perhaps extremely fleshy here? Or, you know, will you just, you know, linger on in, in some form, even though it's not good for for absolutely anyone, including the family dog? But, like, it, it, it's like the typical uh, zombie horror film conundrum. It's, it's hard to kill your loved, one, loved ones even when you know that that would be the right, right course to take. And that leads into incompetence on, on behalf of the, of the brother, which basically kills all, all the animals on, on their farm and eventually even, even con- condemns him. And... With the opening text, like how how the drought is supposed to operate, the the victim is alive as long as the drought is inside you. If once it leaves, you fall dead, and you are dead until it returns back into you. And uh, if the drought is killed while it's not inside of you, you stay dead. Well, which begs the question: If if the drought uh, drought is first inside the sister, and then the brother takes the drought upon himself. Wouldn't the sister still have to, like? Isn't she supposed to stay dead now? Right, right. Not sure exactly what happens, but, but judging from her facial expressions at the end, even the smile at the end, there is something yeah. really sinister going on with that. Uh, excuse me, it's not shotgun. I think it's a rifle. I don't know anything about guns, but it seems like a rifle to me. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a hunting rifle. Yeah. Good going, but what about 
cobbler slot, Hungary. Perhaps the the most interesting hmm. of of these shots. At least background wise. And but uh, so it's directed by a British director though, Peter Strickland. And the film basically explains why you shouldn't look for your ex-girlfriends, especially if they are dead. But I was a little, even when first watching this film, I was a little feeling disinterest when the description goes like, quote, loosely based on the folktale. Why say loosely? Well, it's loosely. Uh, loosely based on the princess's curse in which two brothers vie for the attention of a princess, end quote. Perhaps a bit unfortunate that it, that it is loosely doing that. There's been a lot of that loose going on here. Maybe not the biggest fan. I, I don't know. I, I thought uh, think that uh, couple uh, a lot actually stays more true to the original folktale than, well, than some some other segments here in this collection. So this might be just you know overtly critical opening from the short film itself. You sh- you don't you needn't be this harsh on yourself. I kind of like the, the deviations that this takes from, from the original folktale, because the folktale has, once again, the sippy-sappy happy ending of it all. Here in Coppler's Lot, we don't have that. Yeah, so... The original story more or less goes in the same vein, but then <laughs> she she's in the coffin and... and uh, one of the guards then wins the lady <laughs> after the corpse of the lady has been desperately trying to kill the future husband. But then by the end, miraculously, the princess uh, becomes alive again after some kind of a curse after her death has been removed. Where did that curse even come? Well, what's, what's supposed to be the curse? The, the lady just says in the original story that she... He's gonna die now in three days, so please prepare my f- funeral preparations. I I took it that the curse comes simply from the fact of her being extremely pissed at the two brothers. That the first one that that lied while trying to, to win her over, and that's that's the crime that actually like con- conde- condemned her. But what's the second dude's because, crime? Because the, the second dude's crime. In, in the original story is the fact that he does not believe that the princess will wait for him, uh, wait for him. the the whole thing goes that the, the was it now younger or older brother uh, I, I guess it was the older brother who is the bad guy in, in the story Let, let's say it's older brother the older brother lies to the younger one that the princess has actually gotten so goddamn tired of waiting, waiting the waiting his his sorry ass to to come back with the mystical flower thing that he was supposed to pick and bring the princess as an as a sign of his his affection that the princess has now married another dude. Yeah, um, and, uh, and the pa- brother believes this instead of you know <laughs> believing into. The fact into the princess just you know waiting for him. <laughs> right. that, that's the crime that he has to pay for. The, the, the big, it's, it's kind big of crime. petty. It, it's, it's kind of weak crime. It's petty from the princess end, 
And and the fact that uh, the curse operates on some type of a vampire mechanism where if the princess does not get back into her coffin until sunrise, the curse is somehow lifted. It's also kind of just a easy hand way way to finally get into a happy ending. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's it's something about the clock when the when the bell chimes, then the lady at certain hour will get from her coffin and starts killing people and becomes uh, like a corpse serial killer. Yeah. Uh, and and she has motivations to well, if you're grasping, she has motivation to kill those two brothers. But then she starts killing all the guards that are guarding her coughing as well. I was wondering what's the motivation for those? Like well, she just <laughs> likes killing. Right. I would have loved to see all those her motivation for killing all those people. I kill you because uh, I don't know. I just don't like your face. It, 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 it's a curse thing. It also means that murder is okay once the curse is lifted and you don't actually have to, you know, suffer any kind of consequences for all the killings you did. Because curse. But don't know why, but I still quite enjoyed the original story. Oh, that was good old fun. It, it, it was a good, good traditional, like, fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, with, with, a, with a nice... Nice splash of violence and and piles of blo- uh, bones. Definitely, some something to tell to your kids by the candlelight at age five. Yeah, but I also quite like like the the short films version, where both yeah. brothers die and at the end sandals are being made out of their stupid faces. <laughs> a desecration of of a human body. It's always a good way to end end your story. Uh, and when you think about the whole how this film has been done, like it's mimicking, well, it's basically like a silent film styled film. And when, yeah. when you start thinking about the story, when you start thinking about making it in sound and in in uh, like a modern filmmaking ways, it might become a bit awkward. But somehow this film retains its fairy taleish nature by avoiding the dialogue in audio yeah and that's actually one of the reasons why i so loved loved this one uh, mm. the final tale it's a it's a really curious case because it's a it's a it's the hungarian short directed by by the brit by by a british guy and like you said it's it's taking notes from from silent films especially from the the old surrealistic German silent movies. That is a, a lot of the same things that you saw see in, in Metropolis, you see <laughs> in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Basically, the, the, the famous famous German examples of the German sur- surrealism in cinema, and they are being utilized in here. It's curious, like, mixed bag of things. I'm, I'm surprised that this is the one that comes from Hungary and not from the Germany. Hmm. Why? Why was Germany's input, you know, your traditional filmmaking, and all of a sudden the Brit directing for Hungarians is the one who, you know, borrows from from Germany's silent film tradition? Can't really understand why, but I am really grateful for the fact that somebody actually did this. <laughs> and I. 
quite enjoy the surreal, overly done surreal nature of the kind of a paradise shot where there's like lots of <coughs> white liquid thrown around everywhere. <laughs> it, it It's obviously been a really good night. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but when it comes to like like the visual set design, that perhaps is is the one one gripe that I have with this segment. Mm. Like I like I I love the cinematography. I I do think that that does pretty well good job in in you know borrowing from or pay, paying tribute. To, to Caligari. And when it comes to costumes, when it comes to hair, when it comes to the actors, they managed to pull it off. But something that was signature for, for those films, that, that one aspect that everybody always brings up when, when they show you pictures of, of Dr. Caligari or they, they talk about it, is the set design, the surrealistic set design where, where they... they Rooftops do whatever, and the trees are all wonky, etc., etc., etc. And that's the one area, that's the one aspect where this one falls short. The story itself, it it uses a real-life castle, which, you know, good for you, you know. You found a nice castle in Hungary, and you decided to take your money's worth. Uh, Typically, typically... Grade A, this is exactly what you should do, except this just happens to be this short film, the short film that borrows so heavily from the, the themes, uh, from, you know, the, the language of Dr. Caligari, it shouldn't have done that. It's too grounded, it's too realistic, it's too naturalistic, it's too easy to believe that, yeah, a castle would be built like this. And it's like the one hang-up that I have. Why is the set design so natural? It should have been like out of place, surrealistic, wonky. Hmm. Well, something that is realistic and wonky is also the the camera work. There is uh, this quality of blurriness that you see in old hand-cranked films. Could be even that they were using old film camera um, lenses when making this, but I think what it is, it's still digitally enhanced. I would say the same thing, and I'm basing this on the fact that when it comes to that effect, there is a noticeable difference in in sharpness and, and image quality when, yeah. when you when you have the center of the frame and when you have like the, the blurred edge, edges, especially you know, like the upper and the lower edge of, of of the image. So to me, yeah, that's screaming like post digital processing, uh, yeah. some type of a like, like filter thrown on the image to yeah. give it this quality. Seems kind of like a afterthought. It would have been nice to use some some old um, lenses on it, but what it does have is is also the coloring, kind of reminiscent of uh, those old black and white films where you would have one one frame in only one color, kind of colorized afterwards, or you would have two or three or four, a couple of colors. You have a lot of that that style. So kind of appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm kind of I'm willing to forgive it here because this is like cheaply made short film in a, in a folklore horror anthology. I'm kind of okay with the fact that you didn't 
have the money and the time and you didn't see the trouble of replicating an old mm. old camera, camera and playing with the lenses and you just took the easy route and you digital processing in post-production. Fine in this case. But at the same time while I'm forgiving it, this case also does showcase exactly how hard it is to actually really nail the the vibe, the, the feeling of the the old oh, old black and white or old colored film and, and nailing that aesthetic because they doesn't manage to do it here even though they make a really condemnable attempt. Like yeah. they it, it's not enough if you wanna emulate a silent film, it's not enough that you don't have a dialogue and you just have like like dialogue cards showing up on screen. It's not enough that you don't use color and it's just a black and white. It's not enough that on top of all of this you also like you you have actors who act like people acted in those films. It's just like mm. that there's always something that is too modern and it always so throws a French into the illusion that this is like like an old school, old timey black and white movie. Oh yeah. You you have to like nail all of the things. You have to nail the soundtrack, the acting, the sets, the costumes, the makeup, the the camera itself. Everything has to kind of go hand in hand if you today are trying to replicate an like like 30s black and white movie. Uh, yeah, and even those that you mentioned, that's not enough. Because even if you nail the aesthetic by changing the lenses, what you're still struggling with is just the natural decay of the film that you don't yeah. have. Which you could, of course, emulate with throwing in some dirt and doing some artificial scratching. Uh, like, but not doing it digitally, just doing something to the film. But uh, that's a lot of work. It's a, it's a hell of a lot of work and it's a hell of a hard stunt to pull off. Yeah. Like, like back back in those days, even the film, the physical film itself that you used to shoot, it wasn't really grade A quality. It mm. was for the time period, certainly yes, but when you compare about like how much data that film, the physical film was able to capture versus how much data a, a modern day digital camera can capture, it's a it's a light and day, and you that's also something that you actually see see in quality. Uh, it's my my favorite example of of this problem would be Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, that was directed in in 1992. So you know nowhere near the time frame of of you know black and white silent films, but but. Coppola decided that he absolutely wants to have, like, he wants to make the film so that it plays tribute to the old school filmmaking. All, all, all the camera tricks had to be practical, all the, all the effects had to be practical, etc., etc., etc. And they, they utilized like a lot of, lot of the old school film tricks done by Cha- Chaplin and and Pastor Keaton and, and and you know friends. But Coppola decided that this too is not enough. He wanted to have an old school, black and white, silent take. It's one camera pan in, in the film. It's the moment when Dracula starts to roam the streets of London. It's a, it's a short, it's a, it's a few seconds, just a few seconds. But Coppola decided that he has to have that. 
You has mean to have it. done it with Crank or? Yeah. Oh. That was the only way how Coppola managed to do it. They had to actually rebuild the actual camera. Like the old Crank camera for that one take. Or that one, one pan that they eventually took. And not just the camera, they also recreated, like physically recreated the old old school film, like like the physical film reel. They, they looked how how film was created back in those days and they replicated the process, creating their own film for their own hand-cranked camera. Because yeah. nothing else was authentic enough when they wanted to, to try to capture the feeling of the Buster Keaton era black and white silent films. And even with that end result, you can, you can kind of have agree or disagree whether or not was, was Coppola himself, was even he successful in his attempt? Or is it still too clear and too modern and too good? Yeah, well, I, I bet that if you could put Max, if you could reincarnate or put into a time machine, the likes of Max Shrek or the makers of Nosferatu and bring them to the Blu-ray era, they would see all this wonderful technology and they'd be like, what the fuck, Coppola? <laughs> what most, 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 most likely, most likely, if you would bring them to the present day, <laughs> I, I don't believe they would actually go with, with Blu-ray. If I, I, I do believe that they would stick to their old Old, like, like the way how they did it. Or if they're going to upgrade, they're going to notice that the golden point is the VHS. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the gold standard. The, the gold the, standard of the, filmmaking. Yeah, the, the, the VHS, it's like one comedian put it. The time that VHS was gone, the US economy went to shit because the, the all, all the VHS... VHS fixers, they they went out of job. That was the, it was running the the economy of the country. <laughs> but yeah, uh, quickies. Yeah, why not? Wanna wanna take the lead here or? Yeah, I can take the lead. Uh, <laughs> so, special mention for an actor goes to where and why. Oh, well, let's put it to Marlene Hauser uh, acting as, or Marlene Hauser as Kathy in The Sinful Woman of Hölfall. I, on the other hand, I'm extremely tied between uh, Carly Hajduk and Pet- Peter Jankovic. Hmm. I'm absolutely butchering the names here. But anyways, the, the actors who play, uh, play the two brothers in The Cobblers a lot. Both do really good job, and it's in fact it's a it's a coin toss for me. But I go with Hajduk, who plays Div- uh, Divadar. Is there still some very small special role in in some of these shorts that you would like to shine a light on? Mm, Henrik, not really a role, but the the two parents in the Melonhead segment fighting like children caught my attention. You just want to fight. Fuck off. I, I on the other hand, this, this one also goes to the Coppolers a lot. Oh, it's, it's winning a lot of my quickies today. Uh, it's the legs. All of the bloody legs. It's like leg, 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 leg. It's almost like Quentin Tarantino himself directly at that moment. 
what resonated with you the most or the least? Um, well, you know, as I'm not really into mythology or ancient human delusions, it was still kind of interesting to read about some of it, and uh, especially that short story that we mentioned, the Princess Curse from Hungary. Yeah, for my end, it unfortunately is is the least, and that goes to to United States. Thanks a lot for the melon heads. <laughs> I really didn't fear them, and I still do hope that they would have been removed from the film. In one adjective, how would you describe? Well, not the films, but the anthology as a as a like unified movie. Hmm. This it was it was fascinating. Just gonna go with fascinating. Yeah. Uh to me it was my adjective is and this is going to be bad, but it was different. My my take here is that the movies themselves were, were stylistically different, which led into a different like experiences from one segment to the next, but like, like that whole thing just boils down into an adjective different. Yeah. Do you have a favorite quote? Somehow no. hesitant to think that no. No, well, but um, I, I will just say that well, well, what is it with this some American daddios depicted in these American films? They're just trying to pretend to be so much of the body kind and you using this but dude, sucker. I, I think it's some kind of a weird American culture bonding thing that they are trying to pull off. Yeah. Like, it's like just... in, 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 well, don't know how Americans are in real life, but in their <laughs> fiction that they produce, they constantly want to point out how especially the dad and the son are supposed to have, like, some type of a kinship bond where they go throw ball together and, you know, what have you. There's supposed to be some type of a manly, from man to boy tie that they they share, and I guess this is like supposed to somehow strengthen or emphasize that. Yeah, it just uh, seems. I don't know how they do that, but it just smells kind of artificial. So, how do you think? Do you think that all, all the all the melonhead artificiality in in dialogue still standing? Do you think that the films have any <laughs> staying power or legacy, or this collection? <sighs> Let's say, does this collection has a, have a staying power or legacy? No, this this collection most likely doesn't have any staying power or or legacy. Among horror circles, I'm sure there's a couple of segments that people will share over the internet. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I also don't see that this film would would last the test of time. I'm not necessarily even as positive as you are with you know, w- with the individual segments. I kind of think that this is one that mm. will be forgotten altogether quite quickly. In some cases, it's, a, it's a, perhaps a shame, but you know what you're gonna do. So, uh, talk about the segments. Is there an order you would like to put these? Uh, I kind of threw these haphazardly together. Um... In a, in my list, but I will I will go with the the haunted by Alcarisi from Turkey. That that was just 
plain old fun, and and then followed by Austria's the the sinful woman of hellfire. That was a strong starting point. I quite enjoyed it. Um, from the states, beware of the melon heads. <laughs> it's kind of entertain entertainment value is what I found from it. Weird, weird <laughs> but then, <laughs> then the next Z- Zach is no longer in in the cast, so you don't have to pay lip service. <laughs> it's 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 not perfect by any means, but <laughs> you know, you know there were some interesting shots, some interesting pictures <laughs> that kind of kept, kept uh, coming back to my head. But uh, speaking of heads, let's move somewhere else. Um, uh, the Palace of Horrors on my list as the fourth one, kind of inconclusive. Um, I guess it tell, tells a story, but it's a weird mishmash. Um, Germany, a nocturnal breath. Hungary, cobbler's lot, finally. And Poland, I have not no idea what's going on here, but I will put the Kindler and the Virgin as the seventh, and then the finally, whatever happened to Panagas the Pagan, nothing as the last one. Okay, well, that's a surprising run-up, because I actually have completely different take on my list. <laughs> uh, I start with Kopler's lot, which was the most enjoyable in my end, followed by Crisis, whatever happened to Panagas the Pagan. I think those are like the two best ones here. Then, well, the third place goes to, to Turkey for being the most frightful of the shorts, hunted by Al Karisi, followed by Austria's Sinful Woman of Holofall, a movie that was not really terrifying, but it was a good opener for, for this collection. And from there it gets kind of tighter competition, but it's followed by Poland's, the Kindler and the Virgin. It was still, well, it was still adequate enough installment. Well, all, all like, like an all-around well-made short film for the collection. Same can also kind of be said for, for India's The Palace of Horrors, even though I still can't quite understand what exactly India was trying to pull off with, with its entry. And the final two places would go, well, first, Germany, A Nocturnal Breath. It was well made, but I just kind of didn't feel it. And that the final place is, like, United States, Beware the Melon Heads, which is the short that I enjoyed the least. Perhaps I could make a little adjustment here on my end as well. And after some consideration... I will at least put the melon heads on position six. It, it, it's still too high, but <laughs> I let it stand. <laughs> but complete the sentence. You really know you are watching. Well, let's just say the combination. So you really know you are watching the field guide to evil when. Mm, when grown-up men materialize and perpetuate collective age-old stories produced by human brain malfunction. <laughs> Something to, to, to be expected from me. I, I have to point out, folklore and myths, myths are two different things. They're not one and the same. Yeah. Folklore is, is an 
oral storytelling tradition that just tells funny stories. <laughs> Which may, may of course have, you know, mir- mirror the, the societal expectations and attitudes of the time, sometimes also religious ones. Yeah. Uh, once again, whole fall is a is a in this collection is a good example mm. a critical take on you know what went behind the scenes of the folklore business back in the day but but still they are not the same thing as as myths true that yeah but yeah on my end you really know you're watching the field guide to evil when when inbreeding incest and fratricide are once again back in the business <laughs> but yeah let's Go through the final, the, the perhaps the, the longer, longer questions, if they turn out to be as such. Did you actually like these films, Shalas Collection? Well, let's say that I liked them quite a bit, uh, except the three last ones from the US, Poland and Greece. Yeah, my, I, on the other hand, I, I did like some of these films. But I didn't necessarily like the anthology itself. I I have my problems with like the how how the anthology anthology was was built. And even though there are really good like individual pieces here, I don't think that Field Guide to Evil as a movie as a as a DVD kind of works as as well as no. perhaps would like to believe that it does. Perhaps that's the reason for the ratings. To be honest, I didn't read any ratings. I tried to not to manipulate my, my brain before going into the analysis by myself, but um, that could be the reason. It's kind of that jerkiness, kind of the description that you said, what was it? Like, you put the full brakes on and then you go again. Yeah. Would you still kind of... Do you do you believe? Would you watch at least some of these segments someday again? No, man, I'm I'm busy. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, well, if I would have abundant time, then uh, yeah, some of it was kind of great. But I don't think it's so great that I would pop this on again. Well, I quite enjoyed it, the turkey one. If I needed to show it to some nerd, then probably I would show it to him. But yeah. Yeah, let's say I would not watch the entire film again, because I too am way too busy busy for that, and I also don't have the interest. But I might like from DVD menu to to skip into, jump into some of the individual segments and perhaps check one of those, like, like some night I may quickly recheck, like, like Hungary's coupler slot or or the crisis entry here most likely i i'm not even gonna watch those like like it's just going to be one short film some night and like my revisits with with this one will be like that from from you know this day onwards uh by the way well did you explain where this film actually popped up from Uh, i take it that you haven't watched it before no, I uh, actually just found it while while googling completely at random. Wow. Okay. I like there's that. like there, there's no history between me and this film. There is no rumors. There's nothing. I I just you know googled it at at one evening. You googled evil. <laughs> I I I I googled 
were horror anthologies. Uh-huh. And this was one of the entries that popped up alongside with, you know, ABCs of Death and the VHS movies and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I suggested the the supposed best movie for, from Wales and you were like, nope, let's Google something randomly. Once again, once again, it was going to be just one movie for, for today's episode and I, I decided that if we're going to cover only a fo- one film, it's going to have all the nations <laughs> and all the directors. Gosh. Yeah, this was supposed to be easy, and then I'm like, I have to go into possibly eight mythologies from eight countries. Oh. <laughs> but would you recommend, uh, let's say, the film in in total, would you recommend Field Guide to Evil? Mm, let's get back into that. But like I said, I wouldn't really recommend the, the US, the Poland, and the Greece. But the sinful woman of Hellfall, well, it's, yeah, come on, it's essential viewing for any woman who wants to come out of the closet. Motivational material. Or <laughs> Haunted by Alcarisi, it's the best field guide for pregnant women. Or The Kindler and the Virgin, it reminds us why Henrik shouldn't become a priest. Or, <laughs> or Melon Heads, it's exploring the existential question I guess taking place in all the families out there who are the real melon heads. <clears throat> um, what happened to what happened to Panagas the pagan? Well, nobody cares. Uh, the Palace of Horrors. It's a moral guide for all the evil circus owners out there. That's what will happen to you. A nocturnal breath. It's for well, it's for educational purposes on why not to eat CGI rats. And for a cobbler slot. It's also a reminder to not get in involved with zombie princesses. Just stick with the princess. Prin- that's prince, as in plural. I think that's princess. <laughs> and hopefully this curse of the film, or suggested by the film and the story, can be reconciled by a little brotherly incest version on Pornhub. So would I, would I recommend... The whole anthology. Um, uh, it's kind of a tough one, but, but overall I actually like the content. I will give this a uh, recommendation. Okay. I, on the other hand, I'm on the opposite end of the question. Like you, there are some segments, some individual shorts that I could recommend. In my opinion, uh, in my lists. The, the strong recommendations would be Hungary and Greece, and then Austria perhaps would be a lukewarm. But I wouldn't, like, I'm somehow really hesitant to give recommendations even to the individual segments here. And I really can't recommend the movie itself. Like, The Field Guide to Evil, Horror Anthology. It's, uh, it's an interesting angle to take. I, I like the fact that we have a horror anthology that bases on on folklore. And mm. I do hope, I honestly would hope that this is not the last we are going to hear from this idea. I would love to see Field Guide to Evil 2, which I would hope would be a better, better an- anthology, but this just doesn't do it enough 
in my opinion, to merit a recommendation. There are good ideas, and there are good discussions that you can have thanks to this film. Like, you, you can start to ponder about folklore and and folk tra- tale tradition, and has it been oppre- oppressive? What has been perhaps the damage that has have been done by folklores and through folklores? And there are all these questions that you can approach once you check, check the movie out, but I still just kind of can't recommend actually seeing the trouble of watching the movie itself. It's a, it's a case where this is a movie that is more interesting to talk about, than it's actually to watch. Uh, even then, even then, even though it's a mixed bag, after watching it, you have kind of gathered a couple of, I would say, even quite strong visual images from the film. And the folklore surrounding this, yeah, it's kind of uh, interesting to chew on after after the fact of watching it. It, it's, it becomes worthy of the trouble of getting into it because of those two, three stories, let's say, <laughs> out of the whole bunch. So uh, I would say even that you can skip freely some of them, which I guess would defeat the anthology purpose. But then again, because these are kind of separate units, some work, some don't. So uh, the ones from Turkey and Austria specific- specifically, good stuff. Yeah, and that's a, a good way to cap this off, because it kind of summarizes one of the positives in in anthology films like unlike a, a full feature one movie unlike something that scorsese makes which lasts three hours and it's the one story you just have to watch it in in like fr- from start to to finish you you can't just jump into scene thir- 35 and really have an experience unless you are trying to pay attention into how one camera zoom was pulled off or something like that. But with anthologies, you don't actually have to go through the, the entire thing. You can just... Once you've seen it once, then you it's it's free game and you can just, you know, jump into your favorite segments and only look, watch those if you feel like it. And you, you don't, mm. like... With anthologies, you are free from from the need to watch all of it. Uh, speaking of anthology, what's that South Korean one that uh, they have two two chapters of that famous directors creating stories for that? What the f- hell is that name? Ah, uh, I know what you are talking about. But that 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 would be fun to watch at some point. Three extremes. Yeah, perhaps someday we can actually. Go in and and check out like you know the whole three extremes thing. Uh, after all, we already kind of have dappled in it with, mm-hmm. with you know covering dumplings as a standalone. To be honest, uh, as far as I remember, these weren't particularly good, but I kind of have the the same recollection. It right. it was at least for me se- seeing how it it had like high caliber directors, Fruit Chan, Park Chan-wook and, and mm-hmm. Takashi Meek, especially from which Meek and, and Fruit Chan were, were something that I was interested about. Yeah. Uh, I I do remember that it was somewhat disappointing. Um, but maybe we could touch on Fruit Chan. I've been meaning to do that at some point. Yeah, why not? Why not? I mean, Fruit Chan were eternity in this, in this podcast. <laughs> has already been lost, so 
and just kind of follow with that. We can check out his prostitute trilogy. <laughs> yeah. Isn't, I, is I don't know anything about those films, but you know, the, the, the subject matter of the, of the trilogy sounds promising. Yeah, he, he's the guy who became kind of a, a, a big um, name in the 90s when he was um, kind of inventing the cinema of, of Hong Kong and bringing political color to the films at a touchy time. Yeah, we could check out at one point. Yeah, I only like just no, 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 the dumplings. All right. Any thoughts before we head to the outro, or should should we race to the parking lot of the lab? Uh, I guess at at this time point point, it's just better start running. And in the next episode, yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things that we could do. Of course, one thing that could be kind of ready to go is unfortunately located in the Korean Peninsula. <laughs> but oh, once again, it's but, it's been what two episodes. <laughs> but, I'm, I'm starting to feel homesick already. But, but this would be the perfect time to do so to move from the human mythologies to something non-fiction. If you would do a documentary with me, I just have happened to read also the book related to the documentary. It's about a North Korean escapee refugee who is still known, apparently, to be the only one who has escaped a political prison camp or prison camp in North Korea and has come to tell the story to us stupid Westerners. It's Camp 14, Total Control Zone. Yeah, we could check that one out. I make no promises of reading the book for the, for the episode, though. We have done documentary before. We were kind of forced by the Oscars, but let's just do a documentary now and go to Camp 14, Total Control Zone. Fun times to talk about the North Korean refugee. So, sounds, like a, so, sounds like a North Korean prison camp. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just like this podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> best sites of every every country. Okay, so it's it's once again, we, we haven't picked up picked on North Koreans for quite some time. Yeah, we've We've done it once. Yeah. All right. Uh, we would like to inv- invite you to continue this conver- conversation with us online on our social media pages. The first one to do so will win one Bitcoin automatically. <laughs> and we'll hope you'll... The second one, one will win the fly- flying ticket to the North Korean prison camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something like that. But thank you for joining us and see you in a fortnight. On till then. Mikä hän teknopiisi Henrikistä seuraavaksi tehdään sitten? Eat my flesh, eat my flesh, eat my eat my eat my flesh, eat my flesh, eat my flesh, eat my eat my eat my flesh, 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 at least occasionally flesh, 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 at least occasionally flesh, flesh, flesh. Flesh.
just occasionally flash, flash, flash. Yeah, I got